You know, I, we all do this in our businesses, right? We try to productize things, try to put, put things in a nice, neat package, productize it, and it makes it easier to sell. And I think that's really just all design thinking is, right? right. It's, what we, it's what we've always done in practice. I mean, you built Clio way before design thinking was a thing. You didn't, you weren't thinking about that, but you were going out and spending time talking to your users. But I, you know, the, the concepts generally are sound, but it's what we've all been doing all this time. You know, you have to talk to people. You have to understand your users. You have to do the, the best you can to understand your users. You're never going to fully understand them unless you're, you are exactly in their position. Um, but we take a lot of uh, educated guesses and then we go out and see if we're right. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time ever. Get your pass now at cleocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Nicole Braddock, the founder and CEO at Theory and Principle, a legal and justice technology product design and development firm. Nicole, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jack. I'm glad to be the 81st most important person to you. <laughs> it is a, a stack, stank ranked list, so thanks for, for taking note of that, Nicole. Um, to, to start off, I was wondering if you could give us some background on your career and why you first wanted to make the move from litigation to legal tech entrepreneurship. Yeah, um, my story isn't the most inspiring. Uh, I was a civil rights uh, attorney and um, loved the subject matter, but could not handle litigation. Um, I just could, the adversarial nature of litigation uh, wore me down and uh, so I started looking for other alternatives, ways I can do things that I'm interested in and passionate about. Um, but I live in a pretty small city, Portland, Maine, and interesting opportunities do not uh, exist plentifully here. So I, uh, I yeah, so I was sort of forced into entrepreneurship as you know the way to do things that I wanted with my career that were interesting. Um, and I'm glad it happened. You know, I think you know best design comes from good constraints, and um, I think that uh, if I hadn't been forced to do this, I probably would still be toiling away at a law firm and being miserable. Um, but uh, so I started my first company while I was still practicing law, um, and then just kind of went from there. I, I, used to, I think sort of day one, I launched my first company. It was pretty clear to me that that's what I should be doing, as opposed to being a, a litigator, and have been in the uh, entrepreneurial space. Is that a space you can be in? I don't know. Uh, been, been doing a, a mindset for sure. Mindset. Yeah. So I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been building and growing businesses since then. And tell us about your latest venture theory and principle. Tell us about the, the founding story for that company and, and what kind of work you're doing there. Yeah, sure. So we, we're a product design and development firm that focuses just in the legal space. So we work with, we work across the industry. So we work with legal tech companies, we work with law firms, we work with um, uh, nonprofits to design and build uh, web and mobile applications. Um, and uh, so we're a full service agency. Uh, we can handle sort of all the way from, you know, I have an early idea and I want, you know, want to do some research around this idea, try to understand user needs, um, all the way through to prototyping, testing, design, development, launch, maintenance. So we, we cover sort of full product life cycle. Um, and um, and we also do like little bits along the way. So particularly like for legal tech companies, we'll do like UX auditing and, and UX redesigns. Um, for some companies, we might just do development work. Um, for you know others, we will do sort of the, the full gamut, but our bread and butter sort of end-to-end -end product development work. 
can you tell us about a few specific projects you've undertaken at Thurian Principal? Yeah, sure. So, so we've had a few launches this year um, already. And so one was with a, an AMLA 100 firm, Coral Mooring. We released a uh, product, a client facing product for them that is designed to help the law firm uh, uh, have a streamlined way to communicate regulatory updates to their clients um, and then allow the clients to get sort of personalized analysis of how that regulation applies to the company uh, via the app application. Um, we, um, on the justice side, we do a lot of interesting work there. We're working right now on a project in Wisconsin um, that will allow a user to come in and um, enter just like basic information, their name, date of birth, um, and it will go out and scrape a bunch of public data and come back and identify for the person legal um, issues and remedies they may not even know are available to them. Um, so for example, uh, it will go out and say, oh, you have this, um, this uh, evic uh, eviction on your record, um, but under law that can actually be removed um, because things like that will, might prevent someone right. from getting housing. So we'll completely automate the removal of, of that ev eviction record for the user. Um, or you know, we might go out and say, um, it looks like you have a driver's license that's suspended. Let's help you figure out the paths towards, towards reinstating your driver's license. Um, and so the, the goal of that project overall is to increase uh, income by the residents of Dane County, Wisconsin by 10% by removing sort of those barriers to more gainful employment. So that's an interesting one. Um, another one I'll we've, mention- We've had some interviews on this podcast that have talked about that specific issue. And it's amazing what a huge barrier, small tactical things like that end up being to being able to find a job, being able to get past uh, a simple screen for for a job, those can be really transformative to somebody's lives as 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 mundane as they as they sound. Getting a name change through, getting a, an updated driver's license. Yeah, and I mean, I think the most obvious one we have are criminal records, right? So yeah, um, and it's not always you know in states that don't have good expungement laws, like some states are automatically clearing them now, um, but you have to really know that you have the ability to go and remove that. Um, and, you, and the processes are, of course, unclear because it's the courts that we're dealing with. Um, so providing some really clear insight into like, you have a criminal record, it is eligible for expungement, and here's how to do that with a few clicks is, um, is sort of the goal of that one. Um, and can, can you tell us a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted your firm and, and maybe how you work with, with clients? What's, what's changed and, and what's stayed the same? Uh, yeah, sure. Although I just... I just moved you up. There we go. All right. Um, yeah. So, um, fr from like a business operations standpoint, almost from, nothing. From has an changed. operations standpoint, yeah. Yeah, almost nothing has changed because you know our clients are are global, um, and we are used to working remotely with clients with users. Um, you know, we're, we're often used to being able to like plop down and do some in person work uh, where it's warranted. We obviously can't do that now, um, but we've we've sort of brought in some new tricks and techniques to help us a bit, you know, workshops that would would have previously been held in, in person, we're doing remotely now and sort of playing with some new tools to, to facilitate those kinds of conversations. But um, but by and large, you know, we're, it, it was not a huge transition for, for our company. Um, and I think, you know, work business-wise, uh, you know, we were able to do a lot of work around COVID response for a lot of our clients. So, um, so you know, I think, I think the challenge that a lot of service business have, including law firms, is the ability to develop business. You know, right. so much of our business development is me going out and going to conferences and meeting people. And so that's, you know, one of the challenges that we're, we're working through and, and trying to overcome is, you know, how do we make those connections and create relationships of trust without being able to see somebody in person? 
And if you found any solutions to that problem, that's a, <laughs> it's a gnarly one. It is an early one. And I think what we've been trying to do is, um, is find new ways to respond to the changing client needs. Um, and <clears throat> at least sort of that helps us communicate to our clients. Like we understand that things are changing for you um, and let's help you through it. Uh, so it's really turned more into a marketing focus as opposed to a straight sort of business development and sales focus, which has typically been our um, our path to, to new clients. So, um, so for example, we just rolled out um, a law firm partner program that uh, will allow us to sort of share risk with law firms in building revenue generating products. And, you know, that's in recognition of the fact that innovation budgets at firms are getting cut. Um, but the need for innovation is more acute than ever. So right. how, can, how can we sort of share risk um, and, and help help our law firm clients to, um, to create better products and, and new streams of revenue for the firm? So does that mean sharing costs and sharing revenue in some cases? Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, we offer sort of two free months of, well, first we'll do the prototype and validation. And then, um, and that's a big piece because so often our law firm clients don't do any sort of validation. Um, so it's sort of forcing them into that, uh, into sort of best practices, product development, best practices. And if we determine that, you know, there, there, we have validated that there is a need for this product and it is something that clients will likely be uh, able to pay for, um, and willing to pay for, then we would move into sort of a free MVP development cycle and then have some, some sharing of the upside and, and continue development of the product after, after it's uh, post revenue. Yeah. Very interesting. So you can help firms get over that anxiety around the build, the big, huge thing and, and all the uncertainty around whether you'll be able to recoup that investment. You can take a bit more of an iterative and incremental approach. Yeah, exactly right. And I think uh, for us, you know, we're often facing some some challenges with um, with pushing law firms into sort of good product development practices. Um, and so this this sort of also gives us uh, the ability to say, well, you know, we want this to be successful. We're now invested in this being successful. So we're going to push hard that we do all of these things. Um, and I think it sort of changes the dynamic a little bit and and gives uh, gives a law firm like a true product team to help them as opposed to, you know, you know, one guy in IT here and like maybe a little bit of help from a UX designer over here. So I'd love to talk a little bit about technology and its role in innovation in legal as well, Nicole. I know it's something you've got a lot of thoughts and opinions on and, and you've been at the forefront and, and seen the front lines of what this looks like as well. We, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the, the opportunity that technology presents to help drive innovation in legal and help increase access to justice. Can you talk about what you've seen, you know, through the work you've done at, at Theory and Principle and, and elsewhere and where you think the, the broader opportunities are for uh, some of our listeners that are, are legal tech entrepreneurs or maybe aspiring legal tech entrepreneurs in terms of the opportunity that exists out there? Yeah, I mean, the opportunity continues to be tremendously huge. I think, um, you know, I, as far as sort of like legal tech entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm far less interested in sort of the large law firm contract management type stuff than I am in the access to justice space. Um, and I'm particularly interested in how do we create uh, sustainable revenue generating business models that also help provide access to justice. I think as much as people like to batter legal zoom, I think it's the perfect example of that, right? So they've, they have figured out a way to make a ton of money uh, while also making the law much more accessible to people. Uh, you know, you can, quibble about a lot of things with LegalZoom, but you know, they've done that very well. Um, because I think in this space, in, in sort of technology, people are trying to scale this knowledge and access to, to information um, in one of two ways. One is a nonprofit will create a grant funded product or a legal tech company will create you know, 
a, a revenue generating product, but it, it won't touch access to justice. And so I think that, that we sort of need to come together in the middle and find those opportunities to provide um, lower cost, more accessible ways of, of interacting with the justice system uh, that, that are also sustainable. Um, so I've already forgotten your original question. <laughs> well, you, you, you've, been, you've been doing a good job answering it despite okay. that. Um, I, I, I think the original question was just about the opportunity for, hmm. for legal tech uh, yeah. and technology to help drive innovation in, yes. in legal and to help increase access to justice. And I, I think one of the things that um, you pointed out that I, I think is, is, is so bang on is that this doesn't need to be uh, something that is navigated exclusively by the, the not-for-profit space. There are massive opportunities to increase access to justice while still building a, a sustainable long-term business model that can be a win-win-win for, for lawyers, for, for clients, and for the broader access to justice uh, need and it, it's it's something I think that uh, we we talk a lot about the latent legal market as well. There's this enormous mm -hmm. market waiting to get get tackled by uh, innovators that just yep. think differently about how to price and package and deliver legal services for those um, for those markets and maybe taking the the question in a slightly different direction when you think about the um, this, this kind of product and design led process that you, you go through. You talk about the idea of improving the legal experience for all with thoughtfully designed digital products. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, about what design means to you and, and how you approach solving these problems? What's your toolkit look like and how do you, how do you start approaching these problems in a way that allows you to arrive at, at what have been some pretty cool and innovative solutions? Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a really big question. So I'll do my best to remember the question. As I, as I talk <laughs> you can through unpack it, it a, a piece at a time. Um, yeah, so I think um, there are obviously people in the legal arena who are working on very, very complex technology to solve very hard problems. Uh, but I think there is so much low hanging fruit that we shouldn't overlook. Um, and so much of it can be solved through good design. Um, and I think, um, you know, when we think about, you know, all of the problems that are facing the legal industry, I mean, I think a lot of them can be classified as design problems. So a lot of them are design problems that are outside the scope of what we could handle, uh, you know, sort of the design of, of, of a legal, the legal system and the court structures and, and, and sort of how court processes work. Um, but the parts that we can tackle and, and uh, are really sort of and I'll say that this is the true if we're working with like a small legal aid organization versus a massive international law firm, everybody's trying to solve the same problems. How do we make the law more understandable for consumers? Uh, how do we make the law um, easier to self-advocate? How do we give people access to the right information and, and sort of human resources that they need at the, exactly when they need them? Um, how do we help people be more proactive? Um, and in sort of in, in that advocacy. So everybody's trying to solve like the same group of problems. And I think it's design that helps us, you know, say, okay, in, in what lens are we trying to solve that problem? Who are we mm -hmm. exactly trying to solve that problem for? And what's the best way to communicate and, and sort of um, make these things come to, to light and, um, and solve this problem for that particular user? So it's not rocket science. Uh, it's just something that has been um, ignored, I think, in legal for a long time. And again, like going back to LegalZoom, like they were the first ones to make like a truly like consumer-friendly application. Um, so we're always interested in how can we use technology to sort of to scale this knowledge and information, um, but do it in a way that is um, is 
you know, not painful. Right. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the word we used to always use was delight in technology, right? But, but how do we make it an experience that, that is okay to go through? Um, it may not be the most fun thing you're going to do that day, but like, but it's, it's something that is, you know, everybody's always, human nature is to, is to weigh benefit uh, versus risk, right? And I could risk spending a gobs of time on this application and get nothing in return. So we have to make that value proposition very, very clear in our technology. And we do that through creating, uh, you know, a, a sort of narrowing the process and making it as easy as possible to people. So they understand that it's not gonna take you that much time to put in this work, but we're gonna give you something really big at the end. Um, and that's all, that's all design. And I know this is a bit of a loaded question, but when you when you think about the concept of design thinking, which which has been a, a bit of a, a trendy uh, meme, maybe that that we've seen applied in a lot of different scenarios in in legal over the last few years, what what's your take on design thinking, and 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 how does it relate to creating uh, legal tech products and and products that we ideally want consumers to have an easier time interacting with? Yeah, I mean, I think that. In creating products, any kind of product, you know, widget, any, anything, physical or digital, we're always trying to find product market fit. And that might not be with an end goal to revenue if it's a free product, but we still need to find that. We still need to make sure we're meeting user needs with the right solution in the right way. Um, and so design thinking, I think, was an attempt to sort of uh, create a formula out of that, really out of what's the scientific method. Um, and, you know, I think that when we first started this company, uh, we would say we do design thinking stuff because it was something that was attractive and appealing to clients. Um, even though it's really like, you know, we might take some ideas from design thinking, but we're really not. We're taking just, you know, best practices in products and, and applying them to whatever the appropriate situation is. So I think design thinking was just an attempt to like, you know, I, we all do this in our businesses, right? We try to productize things, try to put, put things in a nice, neat package, productize it, and it makes it easier to sell. And I think that's really just all design thinking is, right? right. It's, what we, it's what we've always done in practice. I mean, you built Clio way before design thinking was a thing. You, didn't, you weren't thinking about that, but you were going out and spending time talking to your users. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, my, my issue around design thinking is really more of a, you know, having it be a thing, like I'm a design thinker, or, you know, I feel like I need to spend $13,000 to go to the D school for a four day course in design thinking so that I can tell people that I have this, or I need to go work at IDEO. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation recently around how design thinking and this concept of like exceptionalism, if you're like somebody who has this design thinking background, um, perpetuates white supremacy, because it's, you know, who can who can afford to go through this, who can have this background, um, and it generally tends to be white men and white men generally tend to dominate the design world. Um, so I, I have a lot of issues and concerns with design thinking as a, you know, a capitalist tool. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, you know, the, the concepts generally are sound, but it's what we've all been doing all this time. You know, you have to talk to people. You have to understand your users. You have to do the, the best you can to understand your users. You're never going to fully understand them unless you're, you are exactly in their position. Um, but we take a lot of uh, educated guesses and then we go out and see if we're right. And, um, and that's the only way to do this. I've heard slightly different takes on design thinking as well as, as just a a bit of a repackaging of of just what design is about that has made it some <laughs> somehow more consumable and and more attractive maybe from a marketing perspective but really it's it's what good design is about in creating products that people find easy to use and that they like to use and that are impactful that's really the the process that design is 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 all about um so when when you look at the um 
the opportunities in in legal, Nicole, that you, you talked about delight being a really high bar, but the the bar we should all strive for is at least to have products that don't suck. But there's still, you know, a lot of products that that suck, and especially as it relates to what consumers need to interact with in the the legal sphere, whether these are are products that are built by you know governments or or, or nonprofits or or even in some cases for profit companies, the, the the bar is pretty pretty low. If you had to point people to a resource or, or to a book or, or to something that is, it is accessible, maybe not, uh, you know, the design thinking course at, at D school, but something that they could, could reach just to get a better understanding or something they could consume to get a better, better understanding of what does better design look like and how can I create products that, that human beings interact with more easily? What are some of the places you'd, you'd point them to? Yeah. So, um, you know, Nielsen Norman Group is the, they're the czars of UX and they're always putting out good content around like specifically like usability and, and, um, and, and clean design. And so that, that's always a great resource. Um, and when it comes to products, uh, my Bible is uh, a book called Build Better Products by a woman named Linda Klein, who mm -hmm. I think is really brilliant. Um, she's worth a Twitter follow and, um, and that book is certainly worth a read. Um, also anything that comes out from Erica Hall, who's, um, who's a UX designer, she's written books um, like called Just Enough Research is one of her books. Um, she's got a couple of others, but she's, she's a, a great resource and, and has a bunch of you know, good blog posts and that sort of thing out there. So, um, so nothing within legal, <laughs> but a lot of good stuff in sort of the general, the general. Yeah. Uh, and again, there, uh, maybe you can answer this question, but is there anything special about legal when it comes to applying these, these concepts, or do you find yourself needing to go through some kind of translation layer, applying these general concepts of good design to legal specific problems? There are things that are special about building for legal. Um, there are things that are unique about lawyers as users. There are things that are unique about how to translate things to consumers of legal information. Um, I mean, that's you know our entire value prop for our company is around the fact that like we you know we understand this industry uh, and we understand how users consume this information, how lawyers how lawyers deliver legal services, um, and I and there are I think it's mostly unique in its constraints. Um, and um, you know the, the the system of law. I think it's no secret to you know, is, is sort of designed for lawyers, and and so the language used is very lawyer centric. The the processes we use are very lawyer centric, and so there's so much translating that has to happen. Um, you know, our our product managers spend a lot of time translating to our developers on on what sort of certain processes mean, what what the reality is for people who have to go through those processes. Um, you know, we. We spend uh, we spend a lot of time translating to our clients um, to, to sort of let them understand that the way that things currently exist is not the only way, um, and and sort of uh, having them let go of some of the lawyerness that is you know deeply embedded, which I you know I understand. Um, I, I have a hard time letting go of some of the lawyerness too, but um, but we do have some pretty unique constraints in this space, and um, and it's not to say that. You know, not you know, other people can't design for legal, but it's also like a, I, I don't take it lightly that we're building in a space that has such significant consequences for people. And so I think some things that we do, we need to do differently. For example, you know, I, I think the concept of an MVP has to look a lot different in legal. Like we can't we can't give somebody a part of a solution. We need to give them the whole solution. Um, otherwise, we risk putting them in a, in a worse situation than they started. So I think that there is a, a sort of a higher ethical obligation around design and legal. 
You also blog frequently on the Medium platform. One of your recent articles was titled, Technology Can't Solve All of Our Problems. Can you walk us through what you meant by that? Yeah, so I think that post particularly was in response to sort of the proliferation of these like law school courses, um, hackathons, that sort of thing, uh, that all involves sort of teaching people how to create these, these quickie little apps. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong in principle with teaching people how to do that. My concern is that building a good product, building a product that's going to be successful is, is very, very challenging, as you know, probably better than anybody. Um, and it, but, it, but it is very easy to build an app, right? There's so many tools that can allow you to sort of generate an app and, and it's very easy. Uh, my concern has been that the more we sort of sexify the technology, um, the less, <laughs> The less we realize, I, I think, the less sexy by contrast does the actual advocacy work looks. Right. And that's the part that, you know, nothing that my company does is going to create fundamental change in how the court systems operate. We simply are not. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm realistic about that. We're going to help people navigate through it. We're going to hopefully help people get around it. Um, we're going to do all these things. But there is so much work that needs to be done that's truly hard work that will truly make an impact. Um, and so my concern is people putting, you know, uh, putting a lot of their chips in the, the sort of technology basket um, because it's it seems easy and sexy uh, without know focusing and, and neglecting the focus on advocacy like I keep seeing all these law firm programs uh, law school programs coming out but I don't see any really on like how do we affect systemic change <laughs> you know how right. do we how do we lobby well like how do we let's look at the data on criminal justice issues and, and sort of how do we tackle that from you know from its source and um, and so I, I just think that uh, a lot of the technology stuff can seem very facile and my concern is that we we overlook the hard stuff um, yeah if we make if we make the tech seem so easy and sexy and 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 I, you know, I don't want to overstate like what we do as being, you know, overly difficult, but <clears throat> building a successful product where, you know, we've got, you know, we'll put a, a QA engineer, a product manager, a project manager, a front end developer, a back end developer, a strategist, a researcher, you know, we, there's a lot of talent that comes together to build a successful product. So I, you know, I guess, um, it's still quite sexy, obviously, but, uh, but it is very hard. It's hard work. And so that, that was really my point there is like, let's not get, um, you know, let's not get distracted by the shiny things and forget that there's really hard work that needs to be done and let's stop glorifying the shiny things over. Right. No, I think it's a really important point and acknowledge at least the fact that, you know, this technology demo might be exciting and, and sexy, but the hard work is yet to come and, and the hard work is driving adoption. The hard work is getting systems to change. And, and that is, um, getting human beings to change the way they do things, which is, yeah. which is the, the hard part of the job. Um, <laughs> even, even from a time frame perspective, you can hack together a pretty cool technology demo over a weekend, building a successful product and, and, and getting the adoption and driving. If you are aiming really high, driving the kind of societal impact that you want to have, that is often a years long plus effort. Absolutely. I mean, I spend a lot of time sitting back and, and, I think that it could be really easy externally to say, oh, we built all these products in, in the access justice space. What an impact we're having. But I, I spent a lot of time sitting back and saying like, you know, are, what really is the impact we're having? And I think that those are really challenging questions in part because with, with the tech, type of technology we do in the justice space, we don't really know. Uh, we can't follow, we, we can, but we don't always follow people through the system after they've sort of been right. through the application. Um, but then I think back to like when I was a lawyer 
and I, you know, I would, you know, help somebody who had been discriminated against in, you know, at a restaurant. Like that makes real change. That's like real impactful change. So, so we have to make sure that when we're directing efforts towards technology, that it actually is going to have that impact. And it's not just a waste of time because if it's wasting time, you might as well go help that one litigant who's got an issue. Um, and that's going to make real change in his life versus, you know, dubious claims of impact on, on, you know, users lives. <clears throat> I just, I see a lot of, Legal aid, especially <clears throat> efforts looking, focusing more on, on building products. And I think that's great, but I, I just, I don't want to lose sight of what's, what's the hard stuff. And, and it's, yeah. you know, it's silly coming for me because I, I don't do the hard stuff, right? I do the technology stuff. <laughs> but you acknowledge it's there. And, and yeah. <clears throat> I think looking, thinking about impact too is, is shipping is, is just the beginning as well. You want to think about what are the broader impacts you're having and, and, and tracking that. Um, I'm also curious what your perspective is on the impact COVID-19 is having on technology adoption and and maybe accelerating adoption of technology in legal. What what through through the perspective you have, what what does that transformation look like, and what are some of the positive impacts maybe that that COVID-19 is having? Yeah. So in the legal space, I have a hard time coming up with very many positive impacts because I, you know, we're, we are about to face an absolute shitstorm of people with, with legal needs that this system is not designed to help. Yeah. Um, but I think sort of the comfort with courts around using um, video technology, comfort with lawyers finding new ways to engage with their clients. Um, I think that's all been uh, helpful and, and help in, helps in moving the right direction. Um, on the sort of private sector side, uh, we have seen a major uptick in requests for UX audits um, and UX redesigns from legal tech companies, which I think is interesting because, um, it, you know, I, I think what that signals to me, and, and I'm you know reading the tea leaves a bit here, but uh, is that um, competition has increased and uh, there's a big opportunity now for legal tech companies, you know, probably the biggest opportunity they've ever had to sell, um, but they can't sell just based on function alone, right? They need they need to sell on ease of use, and so I think we're seeing like a renewed look at okay, this pr this product is you know the, the UI is 15 years old. Uh, can we really stay competitive here? Mm -hmm. And and if not, how do we how do we you know improve our product to stay competitive? So, I think it's touching like a bunch of different angles of of the legal sector. I think most of them are negative, but <laughs> but some of them yeah. you know, there are some bright lights for sure. I don't know about and, adoption. I mean, adoption certainly of video conferencing and, and other forms of communication. That's that's for sure. And and do you think, in terms of addressing this coming tsunami of legal demand that 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 we know is coming down the the pike, is there uh, ways that firms should be thinking preemptively about about technology and how they how they can meet that demand? How to look at that demand as a as an opportunity potentially? Yeah, I mean, we're just going to have to be more efficient. There's, the needs are going to be so huge and like from legal aid, like through like firms that represent um, SMEs, I think those are, those are the firms that are really going to need to work on efficiency. Um, you know, how can we help the most amount of people uh, in the fastest way possible um, and technology, you know, it's not going to solve all the problems, but it sure seems like a really good choice right now for how we can handle this, the scale and size of, of what's about to happen. Um, it sort of, it boggles my mind a bit, you know, when you think about general court backlogs and, and evictions generally, and then you look at the data now about what's, what's coming down the pike. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to wrap your brain around. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, well, Nicole, to wrap up, I, you've got a really inspirational story and a trajectory that I, I know a lot of legal tech entrepreneurs uh, find to be inspiring. If you have advice for others that are looking at the legal space or thinking about entrepreneurship, uh, thinking about legal tech as a potential path, you, those might be lawyers thinking about going more into the technology side or, or technologists mm -hmm. thinking about getting into the, the legal tech space. It does feel like uh, and I agree with your earlier comment that it feels like we're we're kind of entering a new era of legal tech and a, a new uh, a new chapter where there's a, a new set of demands, uh, some very exciting new technologies, and uh, an adoption cycle that is maybe finally seeing technology get get the uptake it it deserves in legal. Um, what's some of the advice you'd share? Uh, what are some of your hard hard earned lessons? What what scar tissue have you accumulated over the the, the years that uh, you can help others avoid? Yeah, uh, I, I have several. Um, one is, uh, it, it's a lot harder than you think it's going to be. Um, I think legal has its own unique challenges that make it, you know, more more of a feeling of pushing a boulder up a hill. Um, if you are a female entrepreneur uh, or a person of color, I would highly recommend finding similar entrepreneurs uh, so that you have people that you can talk to about the unique issues that you face in in selling, in growing a business, in getting funds, because. Um, those struggles are very real and they're real mm -hmm. for everybody. But I think having, you know, I, I, I have a group of a covert group of, of female legal tech founders on WhatsApp and we're just there to say, you know, Oh, I had a sales meeting with this guy. He super creeped on me. Make sure you stay away from him or, wow. you know, like, you know, this, this happened in this firm. So make sure, you know, and those, those sort of whisper networks are critical. Um, and then like sort of more practical, I'd say, uh, is sales. I mean, sales is everything. You can't do anything without sales. Um, so get used to talking to people, get used to being in front of people. Um, but above all else, uh, I, I preach authenticity. And I think that I never started being successful until I let myself be Nicole, which uh, I think Derek will tell you is something I probably shouldn't do <laughs> <laughs> or should do less often perhaps. Um, but, but truly like people respond to authenticity. And, and I think as a lawyer, we're very, we're trained to be very robotic um, and very sort of buttoned up professional. And it took me a few years of being in the business world to understand that that's not what people respond to. People respond to you doing your thing, whatever your thing is. Your thing might be going to CleoCon and sweating profusely and uh, dancing like a maniac and that's okay. I, I think I've um, seen that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think authenticity above all else and don't, don't lose sight of that because I think that it also affects the team you build, it affects the clients you get, it affects the people around you. Do you think there are misperceptions about what selling into legal looks like and, and, and what selling to lawyers looks like? You, you talked about that being a, a key skill. Um, and it, it, we hear a lot, I think, that lawyers buy differently and, and these, these kind of uh, may, may be incorrect generalizations of, of how lawyers buy products and buy technology. Do you have any perspectives on what's correct and what's incorrect about that? Yeah, certainly if you're selling up market, I think all of the things that you expect are correct. I think if you're used to selling into government, you're probably sort of solidly on like in the right direction to sell to right. up market and legal. Um, you know, small mids is a world we don't typically sell to, so I don't have a ton of insight there. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the speed, the level of bureaucracy, the like all those challenges, uh, the sort of old boys network, all of the things that people talk about, I think are, are pretty spot on up market. Uh, so I don't have any 
glowing words of optimism there. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's, hard. it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's definitely hard. But I don't think it's uh, any harder than selling selling to like government, for example. All right. Well, uh, Nicole, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate Thanks, you yeah. joining us and often offering your insight and perspectives. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.